Welcome to another edition of Heartland History, the podcast of the Midwestern History Association. I'm your host, Dana Brown. Today we're speaking with a true Renaissance man, Patrick Karen. Patrick is a former journalist and currently works as an adjunct instructor and field service professor for the University of Cincinnati's College of Education. Patrick also serves as the president of the Green Hills Historical Society in Green Hills, Ohio, and recently launched a new blog titled Buckeye Muse, where he covers the history and literature of Ohio and the Ohio Valley. Patrick, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. I'm glad to be here. Patrick, let's talk a little bit more about your background. You have such an interesting mix of talents and experiences. How and why did you make the leap from journalism into higher ed? Well, I enjoyed working in journalism, and um, uh, it was was very rewarding. Um, I was interested in in something a little more uh, kind of routine, I guess, because a lot of times with reporting, you can be uh, putting in a lot of late nights and, and crazy hours and so on. And I wanted, uh, you know, wanted to have a family one day and, and sort of a more, uh, something a little more uh, structured, I guess. And I'd always uh, had interest in teaching. I, I noticed I'd always enjoyed you know, sharing knowledge and showing people, like training people at a job or whatever. When I had uh, jobs like in college summers and things like that, if I had to show somebody something, I always seemed to have a bit of a knack for that. And I decided to become a secondary a high school teacher, a secondary, you know, middle school and high school English teacher, and I found that there was sort of a common thread with um, it was you know sharing information, um, trying to excite people about learning, um, turning people's minds on with knowledge and ideas and possibilities. And so, uh, after a number of years in journalism, I earned my teaching certificate. I went back to the University of Cincinnati, and um, in two years, I completed their program. And then I, I taught for a number of years um, in high school and middle school, became a stay-at-home father. And I'd also discovered that in my teacher training at the University of Cincinnati, part of it uh, included um, one quarter working with adults on campus at, at the actual University of Cincinnati. Some of them were, were people right out of high school. Some were people in their 40s and 50s uh, who were going back to school. And so all the English teacher trainees had a practicum uh, working with those folks um, to give us just a little bit of extra experience working with you know, language and composition and so on. And so I, I'd always enjoyed working with adults as well, and I earned a uh, adult literacy certificate from UC and, and eventually started uh, teaching developmental reading and writing courses at UC and also keep my hand in with the secondary folks by doing uh, field supervision for uh, middle school and high school student teachers at the University of Cincinnati. So if there's any kind of common thread, I think it is um, exciting people about learning, uh, sharing stories, um, getting people excited about, about life and, and learning and things like that. So that, that's how it, I came to be uh, in higher education from starting out in, in journalism. It's obvious you have such a love for teaching, but let's pivot back to your career in journalism. Do you think that being a journalist fostered a greater appreciation for Midwestern history, and more specifically, the history of Ohio and the Ohio Valley? Yes, it did. I I always had an interest in just history overall, along with 
literature and writing from a very early age. And I'd also just been interested in the, in the landscape around me, just even as a child. I not we live uh, we grew up. I grew up not far from Fort Ancient, which is uh, an ancient Indian uh, uh, settlement in uh, old, probably about forty five miles from where I, I grew up, uh, right outside of Cincinnati. And those were like the Hopewell and Adena uh, cultures and things. And there's a number of mounds, and that's a a, a state historic site. And I just remember seeing that as a child. And, just one of a number of places in Ohio and Kentucky and Indiana we would travel to, and it just made a big impression on me. And later on, as a as a reporter and journalist, I did a, quite a few local history stories and um, things around Cincinnati that you know involve different kind of um, churches and community groups. And so I, I saw it being like a lot of interesting older buildings, churches, and town halls, and uh, village uh, centers and halls and things, and and just just really kept soaking up all that sort of local Ohio lore and history and, and growing up near the river and all the traditions with the Ohio River and the surrounding landscape. And so I always just felt like there was this landscape that was up today, but also below it was all, was, you know, all the, that went, all the layers that went before, um, the, the, the mound culture, the, the pioneers and the, the Shawnee and, and the settlers, and then the, the development of, of Cincinnati and, and southwestern Ohio, and just in further out of field uh, in surrounding areas. So, as a journalist, I did a, a quite a few stories uh, that involved local history. One was about a place called Dunlap Station, which is a was a frontier settlement um, on the western side of Hamilton County, uh, a number of miles from what is now downtown Cincinnati, where uh, a fort was. Under siege, a small frontier settlement, Blue Jacket, and Simon Gertie, and uh, that was a very, still a very powerful landscape to me to go out there and, and just. I researched what had happened and uh, was fascinated by the story. This, this small is almost like a classic frontier archetypal story where this small detachment of soldiers and uh, citizens, you know, the, the men, the women, the children, everybody was sort of rallying together to uh, repel this attack. And so that was one piece I did, and even just also to just some interesting folks that I encountered um, in the city. One was a man named Al Wallpaper Wolf. Wallpaper was his nickname. He was the last of Elliot Ness's Untouchables, and he had moved to Cincinnati. He had a son in town who was a doctor, and he moved um, and was in a um, retirement home. And just a fascinating man. It's, you know, he had actually been part of Elliot Ness's pro- prohibition agents, and he was a consultant for the Brian De Palma film, The Untouchables. So uh, that was a story that actually got you know, a fair amount of attention around town from folks, and still uh, occasionally I run into somebody who remembers it So from the time that I knew from the time. So um, it was just a good education and um, valuable experience just meeting a lot of people in the, in the community as well. Patrick, I know that we've talked about how the deeper we get into our research, the more it connects us to a sense of place. Why don't you elaborate on that a little bit? Well, I just really, the, the Midwest is such a, you know, such a large, you know, geographical area. You, know, you think about this, you know, Ohio is almost more of that sort of eastern end of the, of the Midwest. And I just think it's, you know, there's sort of a popular notion about this part of the country. And I just, I, you know, we're not a monoculture. It's uh, very diverse, you know, in terms of geography, just a, a lot of different groups of people have settled in the region. You know, you have the 
earlier you know, Native American cultures that were just such a part of the landscape. And there's just a lot of deep layers there. And I think just, you know, place has always been powerful for me. Uh, growing up, my mother was from South Central Missouri, um, not far from um, Fort Leonard Wood. And, uh, and so I, I would go out there as a, as a kid to this farm where my, my grandparents lived. And her family history went back to the 1830s out in Missouri. And just to, I always felt like a, a heavy sense of the past uh, there when I went out there as a, as a kid, a young guy. And it wasn't an oppressive thing. It was something that was really fascinating and, and, and uh, that meant a lot to me and still does today. And so that, that sense of the past and this landscape that was uh, just so beautiful also and just powerful in its own right. And uh, it was an area like in a lot of Missouri was, you know, it was a, you know, being a sort of border state, there was a lot of that sort of guerrilla and bushwhacker activity that had occurred uh, out where she grew up. And so I was fascinated by those conflicts that had taken place. I think that's sort of a metaphor for the Midwest. It was sort of, there's this borderlands uh, aspect to it. There's overlap from New England and the South and, and other areas. And also my dad's hometown of Mount Vernon, Ohio, which is a pretty old community for Ohio, it goes back to the early 1800s. Johnny Appleseed had an orchard up in the, the area of Knox County uh, in what is now you know, downtown Mount Vernon. Dan Emmett, who uh, is credited with composing Dixie, he might have adopted an, or a melody he heard around him like a lot of musicians did at the time, but is uh, credited with that song. Uh, grew up there. My, my grandmother actually saw him when she was a child. He lived about, about 19... To about he lived to about 1904, and she was born around 1895. So she would see him as this old man on the streets of Mount Vernon, and I just thought that was fascinating. That here I was talking with someone who'd seen this person who was you know, born well before before the Civil War, and whose father I think had fought in the War of 1812. So that the past was something that was powerfully present. Um, my dad was a World War II veteran, so I just you know, he had his part that he played, and as well along with thousands of others, you know, in history. And those things always made an impression on me. And so I always, I brought that into uh, working with, in, in journalism, and also in, in just in teaching. I, when I taught uh, high school and middle school English, I actually was hired at one school because I had this interdisciplinary uh, interest with history and literature. I think they're, you know, so intertwined. And so, just that, that's part of my back. I always try to encourage students to look with fresh eyes on the world around them, look at their, their hometowns and their, their cities and their places and try to, to see them differently because, and to think about history because I think it's so important. I think it can ground us in, in a lot of ways. And, and I think it's, I'm also, a lot of the people I know who are, who care about history are concerned about the future. We want to know where we've been because we're, we want to be aware about where we're going and what the future holds and what we can learn from the past. Speaking of connecting students to local history, you actually have a very unique opportunity because of the rich history of Green Hills, Ohio. Why don't you talk a little bit about that and your work with the Green Hills Historical Society? Uh, I'm the president, the current president of the Green Hills Historical Society. I, I did a term a, a number of years ago as well. We started back in 1995. And uh, Green Hills is one of three Greenbelt communities built by Franklin Roosevelt's resettlement administration in, during the, the Great Depression. 
it was a uh, effort on the part of the government. They wanted to build a lot more of these, and they only completed three, but they were looking at uh, upwards of 50. But it was a progressive town planning. The idea was to, number one, put people to work, uh, especially um, people with uh, skilled carpenters and plumbers and tradesmen and so on. Um, but also, you know, they were experimenting with creating towns that were uh, very much ahead of their time and, and still are. And, um, and so there, there was a lot of innovation. Um, and there, a lot of them have a sort of modernist-style architecture. And that's very much a feature of Green Hills, Ohio. And so they wanted to also relieve congestion in slum areas and, also, and create these towns where um, you put a lot of people to work building them. The towns have become very self-sufficient. They all had like co-ops. Uh, people were supposed to really work together and, and be involved with the uh, things with their neighbors and community activities. And they were supposed to be supported by the surrounding farmers. So uh, there was one, Greenbelt, Maryland, Greendale, Wisconsin, and then there's Green Hills, Ohio, which is a, probably about 12, 13 miles from the actual downtown center of Cincinnati. And Green Hills is the only one that still retains most of its green space around it. The other towns sold off land for industrial purposes. Green Hills has no industry. Uh, there is a town north of it that was supposed to be additional space for Green Hills and was sold off and became a community called Forest Park. But the, uh, the Green Belt Town experiment ended after World War II. The government had was getting out of the town business. It was sort of a recalibration after all those years of the war and the different social planning experiments of the 30s, and the people could buy their towns uh, from the government. And so Green Hills uh, formed a homeowners uh, corporation and bought Green Hills from the government. And it's just a fascinating place. It's uh, it has a lot of this international style architecture. There's a big village common. Behind it is a, a Green Hills community building that was originally a K-12 school, and that was sort of the nerve center for the whole town. And so these, these towns had these, these community buildings where uh, you had the school and, and you had uh, the churches would meet, like in Green Hills, all the early churches before they built their own buildings would have services in the community building. They would show movies there. They would have dances there. There were adult education classes there. It's really an interesting chapter in town community planning in the U.S. And these, these three towns are these really the, like these exemplars of this uh, visionary planning. And just the way they were designed to take advantage of wind currents and, and topography and uh, the natural cooling of, you know, with having this sort of surrounding green space and things, they're pretty remarkable. And, and we still have people come to Green Hills, and I would suspect the folks in the other towns do as well, have people come from uh, planners and architects and uh, folks who are interested in, you know, historical preservation and architecture, come and visit these towns. And so we've had some folks from Japan and, and China and other countries come and visit Green Hills because they're interested in that that sort of progressive town planning. It's very pedestrian-friendly. Uh, it's very much community-oriented. And it's different now from, from the 30s and 40s. But we, uh, we have a, a museum in the community building, and we just received National Historic landmark status. So that, that's pretty exciting. Wow, Patrick, what an accomplishment. That is fantastic. Congratulations on that designation. What an honor. 
But now I would like to switch gears and talk about yet another project that you're involved in. It's your new blog, Buckeye Muse. Now I've had the pleasure of reading quite a few of the posts, but I would like you to tell our listeners a little bit about why you decided to start blogging. I'm really just intrigued by the blog format because um, it's so open-ended and you can do so many things with it. And it really permits this sort of um, cross-fertilization and sort of cross-genre things. I was looking at a book the other day by John Hallwiss, a Midwestern historian, especially a the literature and history of Illinois. And he has a book called The Bootlegger, The, the Story of Small Town America. And he was mentioning in the preface, he said, you know, I sort of have several things going on with this book. It's like a community history. It's a biography. It's a true crime kind of thing. And I think that the blog format permits a lot of exploration of different aspects of culture. There's profiles of, of different writers associated uh, with the Midwest, with Ohio, and also gets into like Kentucky and, and a bit of West Virginia because I'm in Pennsylvania because I'm looking at the Ohio Valley uh, watershed, or Ohio River watershed, but it, it mainly is, uh, so it touches a little bit on the, the South, but um, it's really mainly Ohio and, and more the Midwest. And, uh, and Ohio is interesting too in that we have like, uh, again, the sort of borderland aspect of the Midwest. You get into Eastern Ohio and you're really getting more into Appalachia and it's sort of rolling hills and, and things like that. So and Kentucky's right across the river as well, and there's such a rich uh, tradition with, with culture and, and history and literature in Kentucky. So, but it's, um, I just, it gives me this uh, forum to explore different things, whether it's uh, taking a look at the actual um, town of sort of the basis for Winesburg, Ohio. There is an actual Winesburg, Ohio in more the Amish country part of the state, uh, but you know Anderson Sherwood Anderson, who who wrote this famous collection short stories, Winesburg, Ohio, gave that name uh, to a town, fictional town based on his hometown of Clyde, Ohio. So, for example, I went up there and and really looked at the town of Clyde and Anderson's time there, and also overlayered you know the, the sort of fictional landscape of Winesburg because so many of the things in that book are are tied so closely. Uh, to this actual geographical space, and so in terms of Midwestern regionalism and things, I just I think that the region is very diverse and it's it's reflected in its literature and its history. Um, here in Ohio, for example, there's Southern influence, there's New England influence, uh, Virginia. Uh, you have particularly you know up in Cleveland, you have, you have a lot of Eastern European and, and Toledo and places like that. Just different waves of immigration have left their mark, Cincinnati, a lot of German uh, influence. And so it's an opportunity to explore uh, different themes related to the Midwest, uh, but also kind of looking at the Midwest in terms of the broader national landscape. And uh, so, for example, I did a posting recently on a man named Ernest Ball from Cleveland, who is sort of the classic Midwestern kind of guy going east, and he goes to New York, and he's this musician and songwriter, and created some of the, or helped create in some instances, some of the sort of classic uh, stage Irish songs like Mother McCree and When Irish Eyes Are Smiling. So not necessarily so much about him in Ohio, but here's someone who contributed to this national culture. And then sometimes I'm bearing down very hard on people who do have this sort of connection with the state, who wrote about it, 
Sherwood Anderson is a classic example who not only had you know, his Winesburg, Ohio, but several volumes of autobiographical writing where he really um, gets into his life uh, in the small towns of Ohio. Patrick, you have so many interesting stories. How do you think your blog is contributing to changing the perception of the Midwest? It's just fascinating, and, and I'm just struck by, you know, sometimes just these perceptions of the Midwest that just seem so sort of simplistic. I, I see this kind of, uh, you know, landscape that can be, you know, kind of bizarre. I mean, uh, you know, the forest in Ohio can be almost jungle-like. It, it's not like we're all uh, in cornfields and things. And, and, you know, we were talking one time about, you know, the Midwest is also cities. So, like, even on my blog, I, there's a series of images at the beginning and a lot of them are, are rural. I've been thinking myself, like, I probably should have a couple of urban, urban images in here because the Midwest is also, you know, these small towns, small communities, uh, large cities, highways and things. And I think I just, I always try to look at uh, to things with fresh eyes. So this country and, and this part of the country and these states, and its literature and its music and its uh, many cultures and, and populations just, are so rich. I I can't see this as flyover country. You've been listening to another episode of Heartland History. I'm Dana Brown, your host. Our guest today has been Patrick Karen, author, educator, blogger. If you'd like more information on Patrick's blog, Buckeye Muse, you can visit him at BuckeyeMuse.com. Patrick, it's been a pleasure having you on the show. Thanks so much, and I hope to talk to you soon. Thank you for having me. I'm glad to be here. Thank you again for tuning in to Heartland History. If you would like more information about the Midwestern History Association, visit us at MidwesternHistory.com. You'll have access to information about memberships, news about upcoming conferences, calls for papers, and panel proposals related to Midwestern history. You might also be interested in subscribing to the print journal Middle West Review or reading our online journal Studies in Midwestern History. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter, and you can find us on Facebook. Until next time.